Well, good singing with you this morning. If you remember this past week, the crazy weather of the uh, freezing rain and snow, that all came on Thursday night, and that's normally when the musicians come and rehearse for this morning, so they, they missed that. So our musicians came this morning, probably before many of you were out of bed, and uh, to prepare for leading us in worship and song this morning, so I greatly appreciate that. And uh, the, the sound techs as well were here way early, and uh, so grateful for their ministry to us. In light of that, I, I said in the first service that I was going to encourage you later service folks to grab some of your friends, because I know you act in community, and, um, and start deciding for the first service, as in start coming to the first service. Uh, the first service has got a lot of seats. Looks like the Wild West in here on Sunday morning, first service. There's people spread out from all over. And, uh, but this service is getting full, and if we had a family of six people show up, they may have difficulty finding seats. So some of you, grab some of your friends and say, hey, let's start making first service, and uh, that'll, that'll help us out with some of our seating. Well, take your Bibles out. Return with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 would have been your scripture reading for this past week and your meditation in preparation for this service. Uh, Pastor Jonathan already read it, and my sermon is going to come from it this morning. And as you find your place, let's uh, just have a quick word of prayer as you find your place in Mark 7. Heavenly Father, we gather again this morning, once again, to hear your word. I pray for myself that I might have clarity and freedom and ability to communicate, once again, a message that I've already delivered. And I pray for all of us, self-included, and for all who have gathered, that this word might fall on us as necessary, as helpful, as beneficial. So your spirit, we pray, would take the word and impress it upon our heart and mind and life. Continue your work of instructing us, growing us in knowledge, growing us in faith and grace and obedience. Uh, for this, we ask, uh, expecting even more than we might request. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do if you were asked to preach a sermon or to bring a message or a devotional or a lesson to a gathered people like I'm doing this morning? Uh, if that task fell on you, and you had to show up and speak up and have something to say, you know, what would you do? Now, I know some of you, actually, I, I imagine many of you would be like, that's never going to happen. There's like no way, ever, never, there's no chance that I'm ever going to preach a sermon or bring a devotional or a message or a lesson to an audience of anyone, even if that audience consisted of my best friends. I'm just never going to do it. Any of you in that boat? Oh, you all going to preach a sermon? Well, who wants to come up and take over? Well, if some of you are in that boat, like, I'm never going to preach a sermon or bring a devotional or a lesson, imagine with me. That's what it's great to be a human. We can image things in our minds. Imagine with me that uh, you've got to bring this message or devotion. What, what would you do to begin? What steps would you take to prepare? How long would you procrastinate? For preachers, Sunday is always coming. I'll start working on the next message this afternoon. But how long would you procrastinate in that preparation? But what would your preparations look like? Where would you begin? And then once you got your preparations together, how would you begin to put together your presentation in some logical, coherent, concise fashion so that the audience you're going to speak to would actually know what you're going to say? And then when you got your preparations done and you got your presentation together, would you practice it? Would you stand in front of the mirror in your bathroom and preach the word? And what would your presentation look like? What would be the manner of your delivery? 
Now, with that in mind, let's ratchet, ratchet the scenario up a notch. Imagine that you've not been asked in advance to speak or to preach or to bring a lesson. And uh, you've not been asked in advance, and you haven't spent any time in preparation, and you show up to an event, and you're asked to speak on the spot. And you're called to take the platform, and you're given the microphone, and you're expected to say something, and you haven't any preparation. How would you begin to put your thoughts together? And what would you have to say? What would you do? Would they need to call an ambulance for you? Would they need to call an ambulance for the person who called you to the microphone because you've taken the microphone and used it as a weapon against the guy who did that to you? I remember once showing up to a funeral, a burial, where a wife and mother that I knew had passed away. I knew her, I knew her husband. It was, again, as you might imagine, a terrible loss, terrible grief and separation as any passing would be. I wasn't asked to officiate the funeral. I wasn't asked to make any preparations. I wasn't asked to share anything. I was simply going as a fellow mourner. The funeral was about an hour away. And when I got there, the husband of the woman who had passed says to the audience who gathered, hey, Mark, why don't you come up here and share something? Do you have something to say? Do you have any word for us? And I became the lone, unprepared preacher for that service. No one one else shared publicly. That's a tough assignment right there. That's pretty heavy. In Mark chapter 7, the religious experts, and we're introduced to them in verse 1, the scribes and the Pharisees, they show up from Jerusalem, the capital city, and they put Jesus on the spot because they ask him to speak publicly. And they assign him the topic to speak on. And their intention is really to trip him up. They want to disqualify him by discrediting his character by his response to their question. How's that for a challenging audience to speak to? You're speaking to the educated elite. You're speaking to the renowned religious leaders. And and they really don't care what you have to say because they've asked you a question they already have an answer for. They just want to see if they can throw you under the bus. That's That's a tough audience right there. That's a tough speaking engagement. Jesus, as we discover in uh, Mark chapter 7, the very opening paragraph, is confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes because his disciples don't keep or they don't hold to the tradition of the elders. They don't keep the customary mandatory practice of the religious people. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they go through this ritualistic hand-washing ceremony when they come home from the marketplace and before they have anything to eat. And they do this so that they won't be defiled or contaminated by the world and so that they might be clean before God. Uh, This hand-washing that they engage in, it looks an awful lot like what the priests were prescribed to do back in the Old Testament when they had to purify themselves before they made offerings on the altar in the temple in the Old Testament practice. Uh, These Pharisees, in their mind, they're like, well, hey, if it's good for the priest to do, then maybe we all ought to do it. And maybe we all ought to do it all the time. And we'll wash our hands every time we come into the marketplace. And we'll wash our hands every time we sit down to eat. And they had established a practice, which became a rule, and that became the traditional norm, which was put above the law. And this hand-washing tradition became mandatory for religious observance. You know, this hand-washing thing that we read about in Mark chapter 7, it isn't about hygiene. Some of you might be reading this and you'll be like, well, we wash our hands every time before we eat. That's a tradition we keep. 
Don't you tell your kids to wash their hands before they eat? Who knows what those hands have touched? Well, this, this hand washing isn't about hygiene. And it's not about public safety or germ control. This hand washing tradition was about rule based morality for self justification before God. In their mind, it's we do this and we make ourselves clean and God accepts us. Uh, this hand washing tradition that Jesus' disciples are not doing is something the religious experts did regularly, and it was a part of a whole system of traditions and practices that they were zealous for. And in their mind, you can make yourself clean and acceptable before God by their behavior. According to Jesus, they had a lot of these things. Hand washing was just one of them. They had a whole bunch of these traditions. They had a whole bunch of these practices that they practice all the time. For example, and there's lots of examples, let me give you one example. In the Old Testament, how many prescribed days were there for fasting? If you read through the Old Testament law that was established for God's chosen people to be set apart as a unique nation, how many days were there per year to fast? Well, one day. It was the Day of Atonement. Well, and the Pharisees thinking, they're like, well, hey, you know, if God prescribes one day of fasting per year, we'll do it twice a week. We'll fast 104 times a year. Whew. And we'll be super special and we'll be super spiritual and we'll be clean before God based on our behavior. And they had all sorts of practices like this because that's what you do when you want to build up a religious resume and appear before others as super spiritual and convince yourself that by your behavior, you're making yourself acceptable to God. So Jesus is here in Mark chapter seven, the scribes and the Pharisees, they show up from Jerusalem and they ask Jesus a question. They want him to speak publicly. Here's the question they ask. Why don't your disciples walk or live according to the tradition of the elders? In short, why don't your disciples do the right thing? Why don't they do the thing that we all do? Why don't they keep the traditions of the elders? In response to their public question, Jesus preaches a sermon and it's a well laid out sermon. Sermon preparers could learn something from Jesus, and sermon listeners could learn something from Jesus' sermon. You know, you gather here every week, and you anticipate singing some songs. You anticipate hearing a sermon. What do you come hoping to hear? That's an important question. Are, you, are there things you think ought to be said? Are there things that you're particularly listening for? Or do you listen for what God has to say as said in his word. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're going to listen to Jesus' sermon, but they're not going to hear it. They're not going to hear what he has to say because they're listening for something and Jesus isn't going to say it. And so they're going to miss the message entirely. And God's word is not going to fall on them because they're wanting a particular answer. They've come expecting something, something they ought to hear. They're not going to hear it, so they're going to miss the whole message. But the disciples, Jesus' disciples on the other hand, they may not understand the message initially, but they're leaning in and they're listening and they'll request for more clarity. Remarkable. Well, here's the development of Jesus' sermon. Uh, look with me here in the text. He begins his sermon by hooking his audience's attention with an opening statement. He says at the beginning of his sermon in verse 8, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. That's interesting, because Isaiah spoke several hundred years earlier to an audience, 
but now Jesus is, this is what he's saying. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? Being a, called a hypocrite should arrest their attention. Uh, what would you think if you came here this morning and I called you a name right at the beginning of the sermon? You bunch of hypocrites. Uh, we think a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. That's not a hypocrite, that's just a liar. And that's easily seen. A hypocrite is a pretender. They're, they're, they're tricky. You don't notice it right off the bat. A hypocrite is a pretender. They act apart, pretending to be other than what they are. Jesus, here at the beginning of his sermon to the Pharisees, is saying to the Pharisees, your outward show of reverence, you know, your hand washing and your pressed linens and all your clean stuff, your, your outward show of reverence doesn't correspond to any inward reality. You are not what you project to others. You look squeaky clean. You dress in your fine robes, and you have all your bleached dining couches, and your house is spotless, and you look squeaky clean, but you're dirty. You're a hypocrite. You're a pretender. So Jesus hooks the audience. He moves on to a biblical text. His sermon comes from the Scripture. He doesn't just preach an idea that he has in his head. He doesn't just preach something that's on his chest. He, his, his message comes from the Scripture, and the Scripture is Isaiah 29, 13. That's his biblical text. He says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, teaching as truth man-made rules. Jesus is saying to these religious experts, Your worth, worship is worthless. God has something to say. And you guys have something to say. And what you have to say doesn't line up with what God has to say. And what you have to say is more important to you than what God has to say. And so you don't listen to what God has to say at all. And God's word is being marginalized in your life as you remain the center, as you obey your own rules that you have made and you end up worshiping yourself. What you have to say and what you want to hear squelches and suppresses what God has to say, and it turns into a worship of yourself. So Jesus hooks the audience, says, you bunch of hypocrites. He has a biblical text, Isaiah 29, 13. Jesus moves on to an interpretation of the text. He interprets Isaiah 29, verse 13, and as he interprets Isaiah 29, 13, he makes one point that he repeats three times over. In verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. In verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And in verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. So there's one biblical text, there's one interpretation, there's one point, it's repeated three times. You leave the commandments of God, you reject the commandments of God, you make void the word of God by your tradition. You think they would get the point you think they would get it. One point repeated three times over. Now, Jesus not only has a biblical text and an interpretation of the text, but he illustrates the text. And everyone loves illustrations. Uh, Jesus says, hey, I can illustrate this for you. Matter of fact, there's a lot of illustrations I could use, but I'm going to use just one. Look at verses 10 with me. Actually, verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, 
honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. It's a capital offense. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, you know, a gift, a special offering given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus, in illustrating this point, he says to his audience, Moses said. Now that's important. Moses wrote down God's word. So he says to them, Moses said, not late interpreters of the law, you know, after the Babylonian exile, Moses said, honor your father and mother. This is God's word. Jesus goes on to say to the scribes and Pharisees, you know, you, you, you're interpreters of the law who have come much later have introduced a way that you could clearly sidestep God's commands. You've made new rules. You've established new traditions. And what you've said and done nullifies what God says. You've come along and says, well, God says, honor your father and mother. We all know vows are important. The law has things to say about vows. So if you take a vow and say, well, everything that I have is really given to God, then you nullify doing anything for your parents. You nullify honoring your father and mother because over here you've made this vow. And in doing this rulemaking, tradition establishing, you nullify what God has said. And you have many things like that. You do this all the time. And now you sit above God's word and you serve as your own authority. And you're in a very dangerous place. After the illustration, Jesus returns and restates the main point. You make void the word of God by your tradition. Okay, so you following Jesus' message? He hooks the crowd, calls them hypocrites. He has a biblical text, Isaiah 29, 13. He has an interpretation of the text. Then he illustrates the interpretation. And then finally, Jesus applies the truth. And that truth is found in verse 14 through 23, which I'm not going to reread for you this morning, but the application of the message, the application most simply stated would be this, the problem isn't having dirty hands. That's where the scribes and Pharisees began. Why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? We all do this. It keeps ourselves clean from defilement, uncontaminated from the world. We wash our hands before we eat and we wash our dining couches and, and we make ourselves acceptable to God. Why don't you wash your hands? Why don't your disciples wash your hands? And Jesus, when he gets to the application part of his sermon, says, the problem isn't having dirty hands. The problem is having a dirty heart. External things don't defile anyone. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles someone. And that's repeated twice in the application. Uh, you can see it in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, slander, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what comes out of the heart is evil thoughts, which ends in foolishness. And between the bookends of evil thoughts and foolishness is all manner of evil. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, all that list. These evil things come from within, not from without. And that's what defiles a person. In other words, Jesus is saying, this hand-washing thing, 
does squat to fix a dirty heart. And the problem is a dirty heart. You're washing pots and kettles and pans and dining couches and you staying away from this and you staying away from that and you dressing in particular clothes and you doing this or that, that does squat to eradicate envy and covetousness and pride and sensuality. That comes from a dirty heart. Bruce Springsteen, that great theologian, Bruce Springsteen sings the song, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. Want me to sing it for you? I can't do it. Bruce Springsteen says, everybody's got a hungry heart. Jesus says, everybody's got a dirty heart. And dirty hearts, not dirty hands, cuts people off from God. So what are you going to do to remedy your dirty heart? How are you going to clean your heart? Because external list of rules doesn't change the heart. So what are you going to do to clean your heart? The promise of the new covenant is a promise of a new heart. God's law no longer written on stone external to us but God's law now written on our heart by his spirit, making us new creations. Oh, that's good news. The promise of the new covenant is a promise of a new heart. The promise of salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ is a new heart and a clean conscience and a right standing with God. Hallelujah. We can't fix our sin-broken hearts, but God can. And he does it through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does it by his spirit, and it's an inside job. Good news. Repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, God's provision for our sin, God's provision for our salvation, God's provision for making us right before God, Repenting of sin and being joined to Jesus by God's grace through faith in Jesus, that changes things. It gives a new heart. It creates a whole new life. And people with new hearts and new lives with new desires, they can actually renew their minds and be strengthened in their inner man by the Spirit. They can learn to put off sin and put on righteousness. They can endure and persevere and grow and mature as God works in them according to his own good pleasure. People who trust in Jesus Christ have been saved from this present evil age and they've been brought into life with God, life with God that never ends. This is good news, really good news. So Jesus gets to this message, preaches a whole sermon, hooks their attention, has a biblical text, interprets a biblical text, illustrates a biblical text, and has a landing place. The problem isn't your dirty hands, Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. The problem isn't dirty hands. The problem is dirty hearts. You know, my problem and your problem isn't external. My problem, your problem, isn't the environment we were raised in. 
or the education we received or the education we didn't receive or the extenuating circumstances of our life. Our problem is a heart problem. The prophet Jeremiah diagnosed it hundreds of years earlier when he said, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God knows it. And God has done something about it. Thank God through Jesus Christ, he has a new covenant and that new covenant has been fulfilled. That covenant was fulfilled with Jesus' death on the cross and with his own blood and by his resurrection and never-ending life, he has secured for us our resurrection and our never-ending life. That, my friends, is salvation. Those who trust in Jesus are joined to Jesus and all of his benefits become theirs. They are positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and they're pragmatically working out that salvation today on this earth. And they're doing it in the power of the Spirit. In the application of his sermon, Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear that keeping a list of external rules and having a long history, a long legacy of religious observance doesn't make the heart right. For the Pharisees, it makes for vain worshipers and defiled pretenders. But those who trust in Jesus are joined to him by grace through faith, and that's the only way we're made right. Now, this is remarkable right here because Mark, the gospel writer, as he's putting together the gospel of Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gives us this sermon that Jesus preaches to the scribes and the Pharisees. He shows us the hook and the biblical text and the interpretation and the illustration, and he applies the truth. And then following that, he gives us two fantastic illustrations of people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves that area. He goes to Syrophoenicia, and he meets a Greek woman outside of the old covenant. And she's heard about Jesus, and she comes to Jesus because her daughter is being oppressed by an evil spirit, and she comes to Jesus and has faith in him. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, no, no. That, you know, this, you, don't, you, don't, you don't cast your food to the dogs. I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, yeah, but what God is doing through, through this new covenant, it, it comes down, it comes down to us. And Jesus marvels at her faith. Incredible. A few chapters earlier, he, you know, he, he's astounded by the unbelief of his townspeople and his own family. But now he comes across this Greek woman and marvels at her faith. And then following that, you have the, uh, the deaf mute man from the Decapolis who also comes to Jesus, believing. And so in this writing carried along by the Holy Spirit, we have these two individuals who are active in their faith and they present a stark contrast to the hypocritical, self-ruled, religious observant scribes and Pharisees who remain cut off from God. Uh, the faith of the Greek woman and the faith of the deaf man, uh, they're like diamonds set on a black cloth and they shine out. Their faith response to Jesus is the appropriate response. And it's, it's put there in sharp contrast. Well, you've heard a sermon this morning from Mark chapter 7. What did you want to hear? What did you come expecting to hear? Something I haven't said that you're looking for me to say? Did you come wanting to hear something that God has said from his word? You've heard a sermon. What have you heard? How has it landed on you? 
In response to the message, I believe the best landing place for us, the best application for us, is a humble and prayerful assessment of our own hearts. I can't see your heart. You can't see mine. You're the best one to give an assessment of your own heart. What's the condition of your heart before God? What's the condition of my heart before God? Is our faith in Jesus Christ? Do we delight in God? Do we desire his word? Do we decide for obedience with hearts made new, given new desires? Now, I understand our hearts are tricky. They're deceptive. You're going to need grace to see your heart right. You're going to need God to see your heart right. King David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's an appropriate prayer for sure. But the good news of today's message is God, God knows our heart. God knows our heart. And he's done something to remedy our problem and to meet our need. And the remedy is Jesus. We sang it this morning. All I need, all I want, Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I want. I don't make myself right with God. I don't, I don't wash hands and keep traditions and have a long legacy of religious observance. That does squat in changing my heart. But God has done something with my dirty heart. He's given me the Lord Jesus Christ and a new covenant that's been fulfilled in the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's an old song. I, again, I did this in the first service. I wish I'd have brought the song with me. It's come to mind in the first service. I'll give it to you. I hope I don't forget the words. You remember this old song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Remarkable. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this word given to us in Mark chapter 7. We thank you for this sermon that's been recorded. And we thank you for the message and how it falls on us. We are most grateful that you have done something to remedy our heart problem. Our problem is not external, it's internal. It's a defiled heart. And you have remedied that through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us white as snow, makes us clean and pure, creates in us a new heart, makes us new creations. So amazed by your grace to us in Christ. And so today in this sermon, we boast in Jesus Christ, we glory in the cross, and we thank you for your provision, for apart from it, we would be hopelessly doomed. Father, we pray that your word would continue to fall on us. Father, I pray for those today who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that they might rejoice in your grace to them. Pray that as your people, we might continue to grow in knowledge, faith, grace, and obedience as you mature us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that we can now do things we could not do before. We can mature and grow as your children. 
What a blessing. Father, I pray for those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and remain cut off from you. I pray that today, like the Syrophoenician woman, like the mute and deaf man, the Decapolis, that today would be a day where they turn to you, run to you, come to you through Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin and trusting in your provision, placing their faith in Jesus. I pray that you would do that work in our midst as well. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We pray now that you'd bless our continued fellowship as your people with one another today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.